at, uh, at this time, at the beginning of the year, is about vision and about what God is up to and what God might be up to and whether we're in tune uh, with him. By the way, if you're watching online, hello. Can we say hello to everybody online? Right, they can't see you, but they spiritually, you know, they know that you're there. Um, where's that uh, next slide? Where are we? So we've got forget the old things we talked about earlier. Forget the former things. Don't dwell there. doesn't mean there isn't some value in the past. Of course, there's much, but you, ha you hang on to it. Don't you mind? It's all right. Divan, you hang on to it. Okay. God is going to do a new thing. It's springing up. Do we discern it? Do we perceive it? Do we see it? Next slide. It has a picture. Okay. Who knows what that is? What's that on that slide? Anybody know? Janus. All right. Janus, Janus. All right. Who is the... Who is, who did some classical education? Come on, people, must be somebody. <laughs> Roman God, Roman God of, well, kind of beginnings, the Roman God of gateways, of doors, of openings, the God of, uh, who's the gatekeeper and the doorkeeper. So that's why January is, is, is named after that God. It's the new year. It's the opening to a, a new year. And so that's why we're talking about new things now at the beginning of this year. And we're going to look today very briefly at the partnership and the lessons from Elijah and Elisha, an older prophet and a younger prophet. So you won't be surprised to know that I'm talking about Elijah, the older prophet, and TJ's talking about Elisha, the younger prophet. That does seem to fit. And what's the background to Elijah? Elijah, there's so much we could talk about, and you're going to have to forgive me because I'm going to take some shortcuts today for the sake of packing a few things in. But in case you don't know, Elijah was one of those prophets who performed a lot of miracles. Not all the prophets did, but he was known as one who performed many miracles, and he was a prophet to God's people, as was often the case when a prophet turned up. You kind of knew it was bad news. Not necessarily the prophet had bad news, but the people of God were in a bad place. You don't get prophets turning up for no reason. They turned up because God's people were not in a good place. Many were worshiping false gods, and that's why he turns up. And he has an encounter in particular with uh, Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab is the king. He marries a, 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 a Jezebel, a foreign woman, worshiping foreign gods. And they incite God's people to worship idols and false gods. There's been an encounter on, uh, at, between Elijah and Jezebel. And Elijah has found out that Jezebel's plan is not to invite him over for dinner and have a chat about which is the best God. But instead, Jezebel's plan is to track Elijah down and kill him in nasty ways. That's the plan. And so in chapter 19 of 1 Kings, what we find is, is we find Elijah, our heroic, miracle-working prophet, on the run, skulking, hiding in the wilderness and in a cave. This is where he is. So on the next slide, I think we have a bit of video. If you click it again, Divan, it'll start playing without the audio. A few years ago, Penny and I were on Mount Carmel. My wife and I were on Mount Carmel in Israel. This is where the incidents of chapter 18 took place when Elijah gathered all the prophets of Baal up on the mountain there and built an altar and called down fire from heaven. Do you remember that? 
called down fire from heaven and it consumed the uh, sacrifices and uh, licked up all the water that was in the trenches and the prophets of Baal were gathered together and slaughtered. And, and, and Isaiah told the people, uh, Elijah told the people, gather them together and don't let any escape. And they sort of chased them down and killed them on the mountainside and down the, in the valley. You can see it's a, a very high spot there. You can see over a very wide area. Uh, it, it, that's what's been going on. Elijah's past is one of courage. You know, a disciple is somebody, someone who follows Jesus, who follows God, is someone who develops courage. Maybe you weren't a very courageous people when you weren't a follower of Jesus, but one of the things we learn from Jesus is how to live by faithful courage or courageous faith. And there's, there's examples of that for every single one of us here. Even if you don't feel like you are by nature a courageous person, by becoming a Christian, turning your back on the world, going a different direction to your family, your friends, and your people around you, the people who would uh, look down on you, you have already taken a massively courageous decision. You're like Elijah in some ways. You may not have called down fire from heaven exactly, but you have something in common with Elijah. You have lived with courageous and by courageous faith. This is what he's been like. He's had the courage to obey God when God called on him to do the most strange things. God told him to pray so there would be no rain, and there was no rain. How long for? Three years. No rain for three years. God called on him to pray a ridiculous, impossible prayer, and he did that, and it worked. When, when Elijah called down fire from heaven, something he'd never seen before, it happened. God did it. He's lived courageously with confrontation against those who oppose God. He's lived courageously in obedience to God. And he's, all, he's done that when he has been effectively all alone. It's one thing to be courageous when you're surrounded by your mates. It's a whole other thing to be courageous and obedient to God when there's no one else around. Now, you and I, if you know the story, know there were some other people around. It's just that he didn't know that. But he didn't know. He didn't have, actually... He didn't have a church to encourage him. What an inspiring man to do all that alone. And God confirmed that he was with Elijah in these actions because uh, the fire came down from heaven. The people of Israel repented. There was a spiritual revival. After this, Jezebel gives him a hard time. He runs away. I think the next slide is of the mountain. So he goes to the mountain, and they th that's traditionally Elijah's cave circled in the red there. I'm not sure if it's definitely the place, but traditionally that's where he was, in a cave, in a mountain. Not much fun. Not exactly uh, perfect um, Airbnb getaway, shall we say. And while he's in the cave, he has a conversation with God, and that conversation is very interesting. And God says, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? which is an interesting question. And on, is it on the, yeah, the next slide? A couple of phrases that uh, Elijah goes back to God with is firstly, um, I have been very zealous. I note the tense, I have been. Not I am very zealous, I have been. And oh, by the way, it was the Israelites who, who went after the foreign gods. It was the Israelites, it was your people, God. They're the ones that caused the problems. And I'm the only one left. Can you just see God handing out the hanky here? You know, the, all right, all right, I'm sorry. Bit of a pity party for, for him here. And he prays just before this in verse 4, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. You don't have to admit it. But have you ever felt that way as a Christian? 
my God, I've had enough of this Christian business. It's hard. My family and my friends, they don't like me. I'm, I'm really struggling with sin. I prayed for this thing and it didn't happen. I prayed for that thing and then it went even worse. I mean, God, I've been praying for this thing for 30 years and nothing's happened. I mean, where, what's going on, God? And I have been zealous. I have been. At times I've given my money and I've turned up to church and I've done a bits of serving and I've, you know, shared my faith a bit here and there and I prayed. I mean, I, I have been zealous. And, and, you know, if the church was in a better place, I'd be doing better. And I'm the only one who's like this and stuck in my situation and I'm all alone. Okay, you don't have to admit to having felt like that, but I'll tell you that I have. I have. And what's Elijah doing? He's uh, captured by, he's captive to his fears. He was running up the mountain to confront the prophets, now he's running away from Jezebel. He's running to confront hundreds of prophets with swords and he's running away from a woman who is nowhere near where he is. He's fearful, giving in to his fears. He's anxious and he's forgetful. God was with him on the mountain, but now he's forgotten that God is still with him in this current threat he's, he has with Jezebel. He's forgot, forgotten, but he is in the perfect place for God to do his work in him because his future is brighter than his past. He can't see it yet. And maybe you can't. Maybe you're having a hard time seeing that your future with God is brighter than any of the brightness of your past. Certainly brighter than the darkness of your current situation, if that's how you feel. The future is brighter. God is, I think on the next slide, that's not coming out very clearly, but God is tender with Elijah. In the wilderness, he sends an angel who touches him twice. Elijah needs a touch. Sometimes we need a hug, don't we? We just need a hug. God is kind, he's tender, he's patient. He doesn't rebuke Elijah straight away, but he reasons with him, he listens to him, he feeds him. He gives him evidence of his power by the fire, by the, uh, the, fire the earthquake, the loud wind, evidence of his power, creating experiences of his power for Elijah, speaks to Elijah, asking him questions, and then ultimately directs him, and directs him by telling him to go back the way you came in verse 15 of chapter 19. Go back and anoint Hazael, anoint Jehu and, and, and get, get yourself um, Eli, Elisha because he's going to be uh, the next prophet after you to succeed you. So in three anointings, I still have work for you to do. What you need to do <clears throat> is you need to leave your pity party and you need to go and re-encounter the people of God that I have prepared for you. Now I say pity party, I may be being a bit hard on Elijah because you know we, we have our own challenges and we don't know what it was exactly like for Elijah but what we do know is that he was in a place of despondency and despair God lifted him out of it he didn't lift himself it was God his encounter with God is what lifted him out of that and gave him faith and hope for the future go and be with my people and what did that mean next slide it meant that Elijah recaptured his correct focus he wasn't focused on God in the wilderness, but he got focused on God in the cave on the mountainside. He regained his focus. On the mountain with the prophets of Baal, he had his focus right. And he recaptured his focus. See, when our eyes are on anything other than Jesus, it damages our focus. Does anything shift your focus? What are we becoming like? On the um, next slide, 
We just click one more time, Divan. It's a puppy with a bunny, right? So this, <laughs> that puppy was brought up with bunnies, right? With, with, with rabbits. And what happens when, what happens when a puppy is brought up with rabbits is it behaves like a rabbit, right? You and I are not that dissimilar. We think we're smarter than a puppy, we, right? But the truth is, what we focus on shapes who we are. And it's, we either deliberately choose what shapes us in a healthy way, or we just let whatever shape us. The news feeds, the social media feeds, what we're exposing ourselves to. What are we choosing to expose ourselves to? Because that shapes you. You like it or not. You may say, well, no, I'm tough. You know, I can watch all that stuff. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't shape me. It's Jesus who shapes me all the time. Well, I hope that's true, but I would submit that unless we deliberately choose what we focus on, we will find ourselves drifting more than we might notice and realize. We become more like whatever has our attention. What are we doing or planning to do this year that will help us to be focused on the right things? And then secondly and finally, the openness issue. We go openness. What happens to Elijah is once he gets his focus back, he becomes open to God doing new things in his life. So anointing these three people, uh, he has about another 10 years of prophetic life left in him uh, after this. Uh, he gets his faith back, stays open to God now. Um, he allows God to do something in him that would be scary. He's got to defy Jezebel. This is not going to be easy, but he does it. And we are people who fundamentally say, God, do what you want with me. I mean, that's a disciple, isn't it? And that is the way to freedom and joy. Uh, next slide, I think. Yeah, Dallas Willard said this. A disciple is a person who has decided that the most important thing in her life is to learn how to do what Jesus said to do. Disciples simply are people who are constantly revising their affairs to carry through on their decision to follow Jesus. Do you see that phrase, constantly revising their affairs? That's God being allowing God to do a new thing. We look at our lives and where our focus is and say, is it where it should be? Is it in a healthy place? And then we revise that so that we can carry through on our decision to follow Jesus. So this January, I suggest this. What's on the next slide? Is it? Yeah, okay. I love this quote from a chap called Carlson, or maybe a woman, actually. I don't know. But anyway, this person. About January, I had drummed into me over many years as a Christian that January was when you came back from your holidays and hit the ground running. I don't know about you, but I'm getting old and I can't run so much anymore. And I find, I find Christmas and New Year great, but I also find them very demanding. I, I do. I don't know about you, but I find myself quite tired in January. And Penny showed me, my wife showed me this. She came out of a book she was reading. I really like it. And culturally, if you look back through history, you often find that Cultures don't regard January as a month to do very much. I mean, what can you do in the dark and the cold without electric lights, without by all the kind of conveniences we have in the modern world? It was a time of reflection. I'm not saying we should do nothing in January. That's not my point. No, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is maybe, maybe it's not just about one day or one week or just a little bit at the beginning of January. Maybe we need to take more time, personally and as a church, to think about the year ahead. Maybe January could be a time of stillness, finding peace in the calm before the storm of the year unfolds. 
You know, Elijah and Elisha are a very interesting couple of people for many reasons, but one of them is, next slide, is that they achieved something almost unprecedented in Scripture, which is a healthy faith succession. I wonder what God will do in us in this area. I'm going to hand over now to TJ. This is tag team preaching. I'm tagged in. Um, with, you know, part of the new thing that Thames Valley is doing is how the older generation and the younger generation are holding hands and working together. I don't want to say older and younger, uh, seasoned and unseasoned, no. Mature and image, no. How about not so old and not so young? Because that's how I think I look at both of us. Um, we're talking Elijah and Elisha. And uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful mentoring relationship. And I was thinking about, you know, famous mentoring relationships out there. I was wondering, can you think of any famous, influential relationships where someone really mentored someone to greatness or, or passed something on to someone. Does anyone come to mind if you think of that kind of dynamic and relationship? Joan. Royalty? Mm. The passing on of the, yeah, the royal responsibilities. Anyone else? Any other ideas? Moses and Joshua. Moses, okay, going, going biblical. I like that. Moses and Joshua. Any, any other that come to mind in the world, in sport, in, in sport? We think of some in sport. Yeah. And Anakin Skywalker, there you go. Okay, we found one. Good. We probably can think of some, but I actually found myself having to think really hard and not a lot of names came to mind. And I, and I started Googling it and, and there were some names that came up, but you know, there was in the business world, there was uh, Warren, Warren Buffett and, and Bill Gates. Um, there's, you know, Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg in the, uh, maybe, you know, in the cultural space, there's Maya Angelou, uh, American poet, civil rights activist, and Oprah Winfrey. But even as I was reading through those, I was wondering, are those mentoring relationships, are those more people that inspired, you know, they got inspiration from someone? I, I don't know to the extent that there was really a, an ongoing walking and holding hands and mentoring uh, in, those, in those influential people. And I think the truth is, in the world, it's actually quite rare to, to find those kind of mentoring relationships. And I think the world tends to celebrate influence and impact and position more than it celebrates the passing on and training and handing over of those things. Um, but it's great that in the Bible, we do have several examples of these mentoring and sharpening relationships where there's inspiration, but there's also the very meaningful passing on of a calling and, and, a, and, a, and a vision uh, to someone else, and, and Rudy mentioned Moses and Joshua. I also think of you know friendships in the Bible, like David and Jonathan, or Ruth and Naomi. Um, in the New Testament, we can think of you know Paul and, and his relationship with Timothy or, or Barnabas, Priscilla and Aquila, and of course Jesus and his disciples is a very clear uh, mentoring relationship. But we're going to be talking a little bit more about Elijah and, and Elisha. It's a shame that their names were so similar probably led to some confusing situations where they were in a room together. Was Elijah, what? Was that me? Or was that, was he talking to you? But I'm going to do my best to, um, to mention both of them without confusing you all. Um, 2 Kings chapter 2, I just want to read a few verses, um, verses 6 to 11. And this is sort of the, the end of Elijah and his ministry and the passing on to, to Elisha. Um, so it says in verses 6 onwards in 2 Kings chapter 2, Then Elijah said to him, Stay here the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he replied, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. 
Fifty men from the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance, facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet if you see me when I'm taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, my father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his garment and tore it in two. Elisha then picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah? He asked. When he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. Amazing transition from Elijah to Elisha and, and just cinematic and epic, and I love that. You know, Elisha served around six years um, before his mentor Elijah was taken up to heaven in what is, I think, probably the coolest and most rock and roll way you can go up to heaven. Uh, and I'm sure there was some conversation between Elijah and God where he got a chance to make his own request. And he was like, God, can I just, when I'm going up, can I just have the chariots and the fire and the horses? And, and I just want a rear view mirror to see Elisha. I just want to wink as I'm going up to Elisha. But, you know, one of the things you see in that story is you see Elisha's love and his devotion to his mentor. He refuses to leave him, even though he's been asked several times to stay back. He wants to go with him. And, it's, and, and the extent of his love is revealed when he's asked the question by Elijah, what can I do for you? What's, what's, your, what's the final parting wish that I could grant for you? And, and, and this, you get the feeling that it could kind of be anything. And if we read on a few verses, we learn that Elisha actually happens to be bold. And he gets mocked for being bold in, 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 in later in the chapter. And so he could have asked for luxurious locks. You know, he could have said, let, let me go full Samson over here, just without my power tied to, the, to my hair. But, but he doesn't. He asks for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And I think that shows how deeply he respected and loved Elijah and how much he saw God working through Elijah. And I don't see it as a pride thing. I don't think Elisha was, was saying, you know, I want to be twice the man that you were, Elijah. I don't think I get that at all from, from what he's asking here. I think what he's really asking for is, I want the full measure of God's spirit in me. Just as you were so fully filled with God's spirit in you and, you, and God did amazing things through you, and Malcolm spoke about the miracles that, that Elijah does, Elisha wanted nothing less. He wanted that in its fullness. He desired God in his fullness. He desired less of himself and more of God's spirit. And Elijah's legacy was Elisha's desire to be used by God. And I've prayed that prayer, you know, I've prayed for a double portion of God's spirit. Sometimes when I'm speaking or when I'm going into a difficult situation, you know, I've prayed, God, give me a double portion of your spirit. But can you imagine Elisha walking with Elijah and seeing the things that, that God has done through him, resurrecting someone, uh, you know, calling fire down from heaven, 
praying and it stops raining for years. And then to, to, to boldly ask, I want a double portion of what God was doing through you in my life. I think it's incredibly bold. Um, and I think it shows just how genuine his desire was to be used by God. I don't think he was just seeking his own comfort or his own power or his own position. There are other things he could have asked for, but he asks for a double portion of God's spirit. And you see how ready and prepared he was for this moment, fully expecting God to work through him. He just needed that double shot of God's spirit to get him going. But as soon as Elijah is taken up, Elisha goes straight to the cloak, throws it over his shoulders, and does the exact same miracle as his first miracle that was Elijah's last miracle, dividing the Jordan and, and walking through it. And then we see uh, the number of miracles recorded by Elisha happens to be 14, whereas the number of miracles recorded in Elijah's story are seven. So he actually ends up doing at least twice as many miracles, and, and, and they are just as incredible if you read the story. You know, the beginning of each year, I like to take time to, to, to reflect over the past year. And I go through and I take stock of some of the challenges, but also some of the things God has been doing. And after I've done that, um, I write down 10 impossible things that I need to start praying for this year. And I got this from a, a, a quiet time book, you know, a devotional book called 40 Days of Prayer. And it challenges you in this book to write down 10 things that you've basically given up on. 10 things that you think God can no longer do in your life that you stop praying for because they just haven't happened yet. And it challenges us, to, to, this book really challenges me to, to believe that God can actually still answer those prayers and he is still working. And every day it, it encourages you to pray for those things and also just journal the ways in which God is answering and, and working towards those impossible situations, even if they've not been answered yet. So at the beginning of each year, I love uh, doing that and just taking time to, to really think about what are those situations, what are those relationships that, that maybe I've, I've given up on that I really need to pray for God to do something in. What are these situations in my life, in my family, in, my, in my, the way I view my future? And I write those all down. And, and I love looking back and seeing the ways that God has been answering those prayers. And it truly fills me with faith. You know, I think many times I'm not bold enough. I definitely don't pray enough. I wouldn't dare ask for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. Even with Christians that I think are, are faithful Christians that have done amazing things, I might aspire to, to, to live like them or share some of their values, but would I really ask for a double portion of, of, of what God has put in them in my life? I think that would be scary. I think that would be uncomfortable. I think I would be like, well, actually, I'm okay right now the way that my life is. Maybe I don't need a double portion of that guy's spirit. Um, but, you know, as well as the boldness of Elisha to dare to ask for something like that, I think he had something else. I think he had something which Elijah had, which makes for a powerful combination and keeps the boldness and the desire in balance and, in fact, makes it sustainable. And I think that thing that they had was emptiness. Now, let me explain this. Desire plus emptiness is a powerful combination. I think his mentor, Elijah, had it. Uh, and I think Malcolm talked about it because we see it when he's out there in the cave. Um, but what, what we're going to see is that we need desire, the desire to be filled with God's spirit, 
but we also need to be empty. I'm going to read 2 Kings 4, and we're going to look at a passage where Elisha does one of his miracles uh, to a widow. And it's in 2 Kings 4. We're going to read this short section here. 2 Kings chapter 4. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. Elisha replied to her, How can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a small jar of olive oil. Elisha said, Go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, Bring me another one. But he replied, There is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil, and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. You know, in this story, we see that only the empty jars could be filled. They went around searching for as many empty jars as they could find. And I bet there were many jars filled with all kinds of stuff. Food, maybe water, maybe just collecting dust. And they would have emptied all of those and brought them and started preparing them to be filled to the full with oil. They had to get rid of something in order to make way for something more valuable. Something that would end up being their ticket out of slavery. And that's what it ended up being for this family. The oil stopped flowing when there were no more empty jars left. I've realized that to be close to God and to really be used by him, we need high desire to be filled by him, but we also need high emptiness. I know that's a clumsy way of phrasing it, but we, we need high desire and we need high emptiness. What is emptiness, I hear you say? That doesn't sound like a good thing. The world doesn't teach us to be empty. That sounds kind of depressing. But what I'm talking about is being poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, as Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount in that beautiful beatitude. Jesus is making a very central point of his teaching in that one sentence. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And he'll go on to repeat that same meaning in different ways throughout his teachings. But you know, sometimes we think of this state of spiritual poverty as a state we need to be in in order to become a Christian. We look back and we think oh, there was a time when I was spiritually poor and that's when I became a Christian. And it's true to say that, yes, we do need to, to experience that in order to truly receive Christ. I do believe we need to, to face spiritual poverty. And I do believe that God fills us but I also think being poor in spirit is a continual lifestyle and mindset and disposition of a Christian and something that actually we need to intentionally work on and intentionally seek after. Because being in state of spiritual poverty is when we can truly be filled. Matthew 9 says something similar. It says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the, rind, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Old cloth, old wineskins, I think is another way of saying being filled with the old stuff, being filled 
with the old. For God to do a new thing, we cannot be filled with our old ways and our old stuff. You can have the desire and the boldness and the expectancy to, for God to work, but if we still think the way we used to, if we're holding on to our old way of looking at the world, if we still feel like my life is good enough, my ways of doing things are the right ways, my pride and my ego are still in control, the desire will not translate to being filled with God's spirit and being used powerfully by him. And I think as we grow older and as we grow richer, I think this gets harder because we think we're wiser and we have more to depend on and our jar starts getting filled with things of the world and, and things from ourselves. So the widow in the story, she had high desire. She was looking for Elisha because she knew her situation was desperate. Her husband had died. And in those days, if you had debts to pay, you had to sell people into slavery. Thank God we don't do that here. But that's how the old days they would settle debts. Someone would have to be sold into slavery. She had high desire to seek out a prophet of the Lord. But she was also bringing her emptiness. And she was bringing something that could be filled. Who comes to mind when you think of high desire and high emptiness in the Bible? I think of the sinful woman in Luke chapter 7. You know, the woman that, that goes and finds Jesus and even dares to go into a Pharisee's house and performs kind of an anointing ritual of worship and thanksgiving for the man who had forgiven her and cleansed her of her sin. I also think of Zacchaeus, who was so desperate to see Jesus that he climbs up a tree in front of many people, um, so motivated just to catch a glimpse of, of, of Jesus, but also moved by his invitation and his compassion to want to stay at his house. High desire, but also emptiness. Who comes to mind when you think of high desire, but low emptiness? I think of, um, I think of the rich young ruler, when I think of that. The rich young ruler, Matthew 19, I think he genuinely desired to know Jesus. I think he questioned Jesus to understand what does it really take to have eternal life, to be in this kingdom. But when Jesus told him the difficult things that he needed to hear, he wasn't in a position to receive that because he was so filled with his love of money, of influence, of power. And he worshiped and cared more about that than he did about really having a relationship and knowing God. High desire, low emptiness. Low desire, low emptiness is the worst place that we can be. And unfortunately, I think that's where much of the world is today. The desire to really know God, to seek to know Jesus, is not there. And people are filled with many things today, with, with, with the love of pleasure, with the love of money, with comfort, with pride. Even though we live in a world where so many people are actually empty, though, you know, empty of meaning, empty of meaningful relationships, but we live in a time and in a world where you can be filled with so many things. We live in a world where entertainment has never been like it's, like it's been before. Um, social media, you know, the, the content we can, we can see at all times. Um, shopping for goods that, you know, for, all, from all, all over the world. The type of food we can enjoy. These are all good things. There's nothing wrong with these things. But we have to be careful that we don't fill our jars with these things. I believe the Pharisees were examples of low desire and low emptiness. Even in the presence of Jesus, they didn't really desire to know him or to listen to him. They were so filled with a righteousness of their own. How about us today? 
I don't know what's filling our jars right now, but I think as we grow older as Christians, we can lose sight of this idea of being in a place of spiritual. What can we do to, to really grow our dependency on God? I think we need to go back to the gospel, the reason why we came to Jesus in the first place. We came to him in weakness, undeserving of a love that showed no bounds and no limits. The love that, that God showed us that he would come down to earth, the fullest portion of his spirit through Jesus, and give his life and his righteousness to us. He went to the cross and died to satisfy the punishment that we deserve. And he rose again from that death to bring us new life. His resurrection leads to our restoration. Elisha and Elijah, they didn't know about this final resurrection. They knew a lot about resurrection because both of them did resurrections. But they didn't know the full picture of what this final resurrection would accomplish. In their stories, their resurrections led to restoration. They saw grief and pain being turned into restoration, to joy, into families being healed. But how about with Christ's resurrection for us? Christ's resurrection means he's bringing healing to our lives. He's bringing healing to the relationships that we have here in church. He's filled our hearts to overflowing with his oil of love. But he's not done yet. He wants to keep filling us every day. Sometimes we forget that each day is actually a new thing. When we wake up in the morning, we have a new thing. It's new time to actually come before God as an empty jar and say, God, fill me today with your love. Fill me with what I need to be filled with before I start filling myself with what everyone else is about to fill me with. We tend to forget that. How can we empty ourselves this year, this month, so that we can be filled with God. Perhaps we need to let go of some of the mistakes and failures that we've experienced. Maybe we're holding on to guilt. Perhaps we need to work on some of the anxieties and fears that we have by talking through them with each other and praying through them together. Perhaps we just need to let go of worldliness that's creeping into our hearts. Perhaps there's criticalness that we've been holding on to. And being critical is not a bad thing. It's good to have criticisms. We can be critical, though, to the point where it becomes bitterness and resentment. Perhaps we need to let go of some of these criticisms because when they become a fixed position in our minds, it can become a rock that's not easily moved. And then God, even if God were to fill a jar, we wouldn't realize he was filling it because we'd be so filled with our own negativity. You know, I've realized for me that setting goals and resolutions doesn't always work for me. But what I'm working on this year, and what my encouragement for all of us this year, is to learn from Elisha and to learn from the widow to whom he performs this miracle, which is let's start off the year with a desire, a real sincere desire for God's spirit to be fully present within us. And let's be expectant that God is going to work amazing things in our lives. Because as a Christian, we have God's spirit fully present within us. And I believe God wants to do amazing things through each and every one of us. But let's also learn from the widow who, in her emptiness, searched for the only man that could help her at the time. Let's search for God. Let's present ourselves empty before him so that we can be filled by him. Um, tomorrow, um, 
as a staff we've discussed, we would like to invite uh, everyone just to, to join us in a, in a day of fasting and prayer for the year ahead as a church. Um, you can do that in whatever way works for you. Um, but I know as a staff, we're going to be fasting and praying tomorrow. And I want to encourage the whole church just to join us by fasting and praying for, for the year ahead, for this new things that God is going to do, um, for your personal experience of God's spirit this year. I think it would be great if we can start off the year with a day really focused and devoted to fasting and praying for that. And um, let's believe that God is going to do a new thing here in Thames Valley, that his will be done in Reading, in Wokingham, in Surrey, in Dorset, in Hampshire, as it is in heaven. Amen. Amen. I'll close in a, in a word of prayer. God, thank you, Father, so much, Lord, that we have this time in January just to reflect, just to to slow down, Father, and to ask to be filled, God, with your spirit. I pray that we can um, have the desire, Lord, that, that Elisha had, the, the boldness, Father, to, to want to be used by you, to want to be filled with your spirit, to be filled with you more than we're filled with our own thoughts and our own desires. I pray that we can also have the emptiness to come before you, Father, and to really hunger and thirst for your righteousness, Father. I pray, Lord, that you'll do a new thing here in Thames Valley. We don't know exactly what that is yet, God, but, but even just today, just seeing uh, the church and just seeing the, the, the young and the old together um, and, and just seeing the passing on of faith is truly an amazing thing, Father. And I pray that you would bless the faith here, bless the people here, and bless this year ahead, Father, so that we can continue to do your will and see you work in even more powerful ways through this church, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.